All right, well, let's continue looking together at Romans chapter 11, and our focus this morning is going to be verses 13 to 24 of Romans chapter 11. And uh, one of the things that, um, if you ever have the privilege of going to visit Israel, one of the most fascinating things that you will see there are trees. On the Mount of Olives, at the traditional site of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed on the night before he went to the cross, are olive trees. And not just any olive trees, there are lots of olive trees in Israel. But in this particular place, there are olive trees that are somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand years old, and maybe even older. And if memory serves, the reason why those olive trees are still alive today is because there are monks who have tended those trees for years, probably for centuries, and what they have done is they have grafted new branches onto those old trees so that they can continue to live and thrive and flourish. Uh, When you graft a branch onto a tree, and uh, most of us have probably never done this, although there might be one or two people who have, if not done it, seen it done, right? When you graft something in, um, you, you take a branch from one tree and you put it into an old tree and you, you sort of, you know, notch it, you know, and, and work it in there and, and help it to those two uh, trees essentially to come together and be joined and unified so that their uh, life is now joined, right? So that uh, the, the branch that was cut off and grafted in will now bear fruit from that uh, older, in this case, uh, trunk, that tree. And that image, uh, that analogy, that picture is what Paul uses here in the heart of Romans 11 to explain the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, uh, believing Jews and unbelieving Jews and believing Gentiles. How do they all relate together? Paul uses this picture of an olive tree with some branches cut off and some branches grafted in to help us understand what God is doing and how all of this works. Now, most of Romans 9 and 10 and 11 is focused on the Jews. We've seen that week after week that Paul is explaining and unfolding for us. God's dealing with the Jews in particular, and he draws on what God did in the Old Testament to explain what's going on now in the days of the New Testament uh, to help us understand how God remains faithful even while many of his people have rejected the Messiah and have been faithless themselves. But now, in verse 13, he turns his attention specifically to the Gentiles and addresses them. So if you are a Gentile, if you're not a Jew, and you're a believer, Paul is talking to you in particular, beginning in verse 13. He's addressing us. He has some things he wants us to understand, some things he wants us to to avoid and be warned about as well. So here's what he says in verse 13. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So that we are the focus now. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, he says, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous 
and thus save some of them. So Paul reminds us here that he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And that doesn't mean that his ministry was limited exclusively to the Gentiles, to non-Jews, but that was his focus. From the very beginning, when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and was blinded uh, by the glorious sight of the risen Christ, Jesus sent Ananias to go and speak to Paul uh, there, there in Damascus after he'd been blinded. He was waiting for instructions, waiting to be baptized. And Jesus sent Ananias to uh, baptize Paul and to speak to Paul. And he told Ananias, he said, Go, for he, talking about Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul's focus, the primary place he was sent was to the Gentiles. We see that all through the book of Acts. But not to the exclusion of the Jews. He ministered and preached the gospel to the Jews as well. It was his habit to go into the synagogue and preach the gospel to them in every town that he went. But again, his focus was on the Gentiles. And yet he says, even as he ministers to the Gentiles... His mind is on the Jewish people. His mind is on his kinsmen according to the flesh. And what he is doing is he is trying to make as big a deal out of his ministry to the Gentiles as he can. Trying to magnify that ministry so that he might make the Jews jealous and some of them end up being saved and believing in Jesus the Messiah. And when he is doing that, he is drawing that game plan, so to speak, from God's own plan and purpose for the Jews. Remember, he said back in chapter 10, he quoted Deuteronomy 32, where God said uh, about his own people, They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. That would be the Gentiles. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So Paul says, okay, what God is doing is God is uh, bringing many Gentiles to faith. People who didn't have any expectations about the Messiah coming, weren't paying attention to those scriptures, weren't seeking to be made right with God, any of that stuff, until they heard the gospel. And now all of a sudden they're believing in the Messiah. And and the reason why that's happening is God is drawing them to himself in great numbers so that the Jews will say, oh, hold hold on, that's our Messiah. Those are our promises that these Gentiles are inheriting so that they will then be jealous of what the Gentiles are receiving so that they will turn back to the Lord and they will receive Jesus as the Messiah. So Paul says, that's that's God's game plan. That's going to be my game plan. If that's what God is up to, God is working among the Gentiles in order to draw his own people back to him, then I'm going to do as much as I can among the Gentiles, make as big a deal as I can out of my ministry among the Gentiles in the hopes that that will turn many of the Jews to Jesus. He's not neglecting the Jews He's not turned his back on the Jews and said, forget you. I got, I got a much more receptive audience among the Gentiles. He's not ignoring them. Right? He, he does tell them at times when they do re- reject uh, the gospel that he preaches. He says, okay, well, I'm going to the Gentiles now. 
But when he does that, it's not in a like final sense of, I'm, I'm done with you. But you just need to know, if you're not going to listen, there are people who will. And uh, I'm going to preach to them as much as possible in the hopes that you'll change your mind and start listening again. That's, that's what Paul is up to. And notice what he says about what will happen if the Jews do start to turn back to the Lord. In verse 15, he says, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? He said something like this back in verse 12 and verse 11. Something good has come of the Jews' rejection of the Messiah. That, that in itself is a, is a bad thing, right? The Jews rejecting Jesus, that's not good. But something very good has come of it. Uh, Paul says the reconciliation of the world, not, not meaning every person in the world has been reconciled, but people from all over the world are being reconciled to God through the gospel precisely because the Jews have rejected it. And so he says if that good thing has come out of their rejection, that bad thing, then what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So if they, if they now turn and accept Jesus as the Messiah, or, or you know, let's say the other way, they are accepted by God through faith in the Messiah, then how much greater is that going to be? If their sin leads to reconciliation, what will their repentance lead to? Something so great, Paul calls it nothing less than life from the dead. And there are a lot of places in here where um, uh, scholars and Bible interpreters uh, come up with different ways of explaining what Paul is talking about. And, and some of them are hard to decide. You know, um, Is Paul here talking about um, the literal resurrection from the dead that's going to happen at the return of Christ? Maybe. Maybe. Or is he simply describing some great blessing, some great awakening, revival, or something that can only be described in terms of spiritual resurrection, a great uh, turning from death to life? It's, it's hard to be certain. It could be either one. But the clear point is, that one, God's not done with the Jews. Paul's not turned his back on the Jews and neither has the Lord. God's not done with the Jews. Paul's not talking about their acceptance as something hypothetical. This is something that's going to happen and it's going to mean great blessing uh, for the world. In fact, might even be the herald of the return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And then he explains further in verse 16 how this works. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, what is he talking about here? Again, there's uh, you know, different ideas. Paul, it's, it's a little uh, enigmatic, right? He doesn't spell it out for us. Uh, it sounds like in verse 16, when he says the dough offered as first fruits, that sounds like he would be talking about the remnant of Jews who have believed already. Right? So they're sort of the first fruits. And if they are holy, which of course they are, then Paul's saying, then the whole lump of dough, meaning all of Israel, is holy as well. That could very, very well 
be what he means. Um, there are at least some, I think, who uh, say that the dough there offered as first fruits is not the, the current remnant of Israel, but is the beginning of Israel, namely the, the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, and that could be as well. That certainly seems to be what he's referring to in the second half of the verse when he talks about the root, because the root is the, the beginning, the starting place, right? If the root is holy, and um, at least one scholar said that's the majority view. Almost everybody believes that the patriarchs, or I think you can say more specifically, the promises to the patriarchs, the pl- promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those are the root of the olive tree. And if the root is holy, so are the branches, so are the individual uh, Jews themselves. So he's um, guarding against us either saying, well, I like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I don't care anything about the Jewish people. Or saying, well, clearly the Jewish people who believe, you know, they're on our side, but the Jewish people who don't believe, we don't have any time for them. Paul says, if part is holy, the whole thing is holy. Um. And as at least one teacher pointed out, this is, that's basically the same thing that Paul says later in verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, talking about the, uh, the unbelieving Jews, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. You, you can't have just part of it. The, the, the whole people is holy, Paul says. So what these verses tell us here right at the beginning, what Paul is trying to get us uh, Gentiles in particular to understand is that God is up to something bigger than just saving a few individuals here and there. He has an overarching plan. He is up to something great in the world that is going to uh, include not only the salvation of numerous Gentiles, but also a turning of his own people, of the Jewish people, uh, back to the Lord. So he is up to something big. He is up to something significant. He's up to something Great, that is going to bring great blessing for the whole world, which, after all, is exactly what he promised Abraham in the beginning. Remember when he called Abraham to leave his country and his kindred? And he said, I'm going I'm to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to make a great name for you. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your offspring. And he said, and I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Romans 11 is basically a, uh, a further explanation of what God meant by that all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. How are you going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring? That's what Romans 11 is explaining in greater detail as God unfolds more and more of his plan for us. So that's the first thing he wants us Gentiles to understand. Now in verse 17, he begins to give us a warning. A warning. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root 
that supports you. So he's got this picture of a tree, right? That he starts with in verse 16, a root that's holy. And so the branches are holy. And he uh, continues with that illustration, that analogy. And he says, okay, if some of the branches on this tree, some of the Jews that were part of this olive tree, if some of them were broken off of the tree, and then you Gentiles who are like wild olive shoots, you're not from this cultivated olive tree. You, we just kind of, we got you from out in the wilderness somewhere, just some tree that sprung up on its own. Your branches from a wild olive shoot, and now you have been grafted into this cultivated olive tree, and you're sharing in this nourishing root, these promises that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You're sharing in that nourishing root. Here's what you need to be on guard against. You need to be on guard against any kind of pride that makes you feel superior to those other branches. Um, It is a real danger. It is a real danger to think that because you have something that somebody else doesn't, that you are superior to them. Even when you know good and well, or ought to, the only reason you have it is because God has been gracious to you, and God has given it to you. I was talking to um, some of my students this week about sometimes how um, you will see uh, certain athletes who are, uh, appear to be extremely proud of their uh, abilities, right? And without downplaying the hard work that those guys put into um, what they are able to do, there's a certain sense in which we look at those guys and say, okay, look, if I was seven feet tall and weighed 225 pounds, I could probably play a little bit of basketball too. You know, So how about at least a little bit of humility to recognize some of why you can do what you can do is because God put in your genes stuff he didn't put in other people's genes. There should be a little bit of humility there because you didn't make yourself seven feet tall. You didn't have any control over that. Right? Um, so whenever we have something, we're all prone to that in different areas. I'm not just picking on them. That's just one example. We're all prone to that. Something we have, something we're good at, something we're given that we probably had very little control over. If other people don't have it, we are inclined to be proud about it and boast over those who don't have it. And so Paul sees this danger in Gentile believers that they will become arrogant and proud toward the Jewish branches, and particularly the ones that have been cut off, that are no longer a part of the tree. And one of the reasons why we should not be arrogant and not be proud, as he says there, is he says, if you are, if you are proud about this, here's what you need to remember. It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So what you need to remember is, if you are experiencing God's blessings that he promised to pour out in the world through Abraham, guess who those are coming to you from? 
They're coming to you ultimately from God, and they're coming to you through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the fathers of the Jewish people. They're not coming from you. They're not coming from Gentiles. It's not Gentiles who are sort of the lifeblood of the church. Though there might be more of us than there are of believing Jews, we're not the ones who are at the heart of what God is doing. We are the ones who are just ought to be just happy to be here. I'm just glad you brought me in. I'm just glad you included me. I'm just glad your grace extended to me. Because you, you didn't promise me anything. I wasn't, I wasn't in the covenant, right? Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. We were strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise. We were aliens. We were without hope. We were without God. But through Christ, God has now brought us near who were once far off. And he's made us one new man with the Jews who were near, who have believed. And now we are one body in Christ. And there's no room for pride for any of us. So he says, you know, don't don't be arrogant and understand how this has happened. Verse 19, he says, he says, then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And the implication is there, that sounds like a good reason to be proud. It sounds like God wanted me and not them. Is that what's going on? Paul says, that's true, the part about branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in, not the part about God wanting you and not them. But the, the, the fact that others were broken off so that you could be included, that's true, Paul says. But, here's what you need to remember. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. So the branches that were broken off, and there were branches broken off. The branches that were broken off, they were broken off because they did not believe. Not because God didn't want them, but because they turned their back on God. They did not believe, so they were broken off. You, he says, stand fast through faith. The reason you have been grafted in, the reason you are now connected to the olive tree, is because you believe. So, rather than being proud, you should be afraid a little bit. Afraid of what? Verse 21. He says, For if God did not spare the natural branches... Neither will he spare you. If God has broken off natural branches that don't believe, what do you think is going to happen to you if you turn out not to believe? Think you're going to get to stick around? No. No. Verse 22 says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So if you don't remain in God's kindness, if you don't continue to believe, you'll be cut off just like they were. Those who are in are in because they believe. Those who are out are out because they don't believe. And if you don't continue believing you'll be out as well. 
when he tells us there to fear? He's essentially saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, when he said, don't fear those who can kill the body, and that's all they can do. Rather, fear him who can cast soul and body into hell. Fear God, in other words, because he's the one who really has control over your entire life. You need to have, there needs to be a little bit of, of trembling there. A recognition that God is greater than you. And that God doesn't owe you anything. And that if you don't do what God has called you to do, you're going to be in trouble. Right? So he says, pay attention, note the kindness and the severity of God. And he says, the severity of God is manifested, is seen in those branches that are cut off, right? Those who have fallen. And God's kindness is seen in those who believe, those who are grafted in, and those who remain. Right? Now, in one sense, God is kind to everybody, right? Jesus says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the just and the unjust alike. Everybody experiences the kindness of God. But uh, some also experience the severity of God. There is no sort of wiggle room around the requirement to repent and believe in the gospel. God is not going to say to anybody on the last day, look, I know you understood the terms. I know I made it really clear that you were supposed to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. But, you know, we'll make an exception in your case. There's no softness on that line. There is severity. If you believe, you're in. If you don't believe, you are out. You are cut off. There's no wiggle room there. It's It's a immovable line in the sand. It's not going to change. But for those who do believe, right, there is kindness, there is grace, there is mercy. And the Bible tells us this about God all the way through. Right? Um, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says that the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, showing steadfast love for thousands. It's the kindness of God. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father's on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Severity of God. You find that all the way through the Bible. Here's the danger. We must beware of distorting God's character in either direction. In either saying that God is kind without severity or that He is severe without kindness. Both of those are distortions of the truth and people have been prone to make both of those mistakes. Paul tells us to note both of them well and hold them both together. God is a God who judges and God is a God who saves by grace. And both of those things are true and we should not take either of them for granted. Now, finally, verses 23 and 24, Paul is again moving towards uh, God's 
future plan for the Jewish people with some hints here where he says, and even they, talking about the branches that God has cut off, the Jews who have not believed, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. But guess what? If you are a Gentile who's been grafted into the olive tree because you believed, you think God can't graft in Jews who turn to the Messiah? Of course he can. That's easier than putting you in the tree. They belong there. We don't really. He makes us belong, but we didn't belong by nature. We were wild olive shoots. It's much easier for God to put believing Jews back into the tree. Verse 24, For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back in to their own olive tree? We know from Scripture that nothing is too hard for the Lord, but this is easy. This is easy. So we should not think that uh, us being included while others have been cut off means that we are somehow superior. We're not. We're here by grace. We're here because of the kindness of God. Nor should we think that the current state of affairs is permanent, as if The rest of the Jewish people will remain in unbelief from here on out. Paul is saying, no, if they believe, and he wouldn't be talking about this if it wasn't going to happen. If they believe, they'll be grafted back in again. And it's not even going to be hard for God to do that. God's done some stuff that looks hard to us. This is not hard. This is easy. So a believing Gentile has all the rights, all the privileges, all the blessings that come with being part of the people of God. That's what it means to be grafted into this olive tree. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Male, female, it doesn't matter. Slave-free, doesn't matter. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. We are one body, one family, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor. We are all one in Christ because of Christ. And we are all given confidence and assurance because we belong to the King. But we must not let that confidence turn into arrogance. That kindness, that grace that we have been shown must lead to humility. As we remember that we have been grafted into a story that didn't start with us. A story that's not over yet. A story that by grace, God has made us a part of. And we give thanks for that. Let's pray.